Turn in your Bibles now to the book of Philippians, the third chapter, Philippians chapter three. I'm going to read just the first three verses of Philippians chapter three. Let's give our attention now to the word of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul begins here by saying, finally, finally. Don't be confused when he says that. After all, he's only in the middle of this letter. He's got two more chapters to go. Now I know that there can be some biblical justification now for preachers who say finally halfway through their sermon. But that's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is actually saying something more akin to next. A word he uses here, uh, loosely translated, and, but more helpful, would be something along those lines. Here's the next thing I want to tell you. <coughs> it may have been that he thought at that point that he was about to wrap things up, possibly. And the Holy Spirit moved him to keep on writing. There was more to be said than he had initially planned. So that's a possibility. But whatever the case, Paul is about to emphasize something vitally important. So what is next is important for you and for me, as well as it is for the Philippians, because he's going to tell us through the next 16 verses, which is really a unit, he's going to tell us how the gospel changes people. How the gospel changes people. In verses four through three, prepare us for that. When you get started at verse four and go on to verse 16, which we'll do in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, you will find that Paul's giving his spiritual autobiography He's going to tell us uh, what his life was like before Christ came, what his life was like when Christ came, and what his life was like since Christ came into his life. By the way, if you're ever trying to figure out how can I relate to other people, how the Lord has worked in my life, you could use that formula. What was your life like before Jesus? And how did Jesus come to you and work in you and draw you to himself? And then, what has your life been like since? It's really what Paul does there, and I'm getting ahead of myself. We will talk about that in a couple of weeks. But here's the setup, if you will, in these first three verses. Joy is emphasized here. Paul is stressing here a key component of the Christian life, joy. And so everything he's going to tell us here really flows out of that. 
You've seen Paul use this term joy or rejoice already several times if you've been working through Philippians with us. And he's going to use it again later on in this letter. It's a way of God saying, of Paul saying through the Lord's work in him, the Christian life is a life of joy. Now, there are several surprising uh, and sometimes misunderstood characteristics of Christian joy that Paul highlights here in these three verses. There's one of them in each of the three verses that we've read. The first one simply says joy is really a duty. Joy is really a duty. He doesn't say, I hope you have joy. He doesn't say, try harder to be happier. It's a command. Rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says the same thing. And we'll, of course, deal with it then when we get to it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he repeats himself. Again, I will say, rejoice. You see how important that is. We are commanded to have joy, to be joyful, to rejoice. We know we are to pray, right? We're commanded to pray. We know that we are to love one another. We're commanded to love one another. We know we are to speak truth rather than lies. We're commanded to do that. Well, we know that we are to be joyful. So whatever your hanging ups or, or questions may be about joy being a command, hold on to that while we think about this. Rejoice in the Lord. Not fake joy, not a denial of all our hardships and, and trying to just stifle those and, and hope they'll go away and somehow, you know, just muster up enough uh, uh, happiness in our life to, to muddle through. He's not talking about that. Joy doesn't depend on our circumstances. A lot of times we, we tend to feel that way. You know, how are you doing? And we got this two foot long face. We already know how they're doing. It's obvious to them. How are you doing? The last thing they can do is say, oh, I'm joyful in Jesus. And put on, you know, a fake smile. That's, that's not what joy is. Whatever our circumstances are, whatever this joy is, it's there all the time. It's not primarily it's not primarily an emotion. Yes, it does affect our emotions, of course. It's really more of an, a heart attitude. And so as things, you know, life is a roller coaster, right? You know, we, we have these wonderful moments and then we have these awful times. But joy can be a constant and should be a constant whatever is going on in our lives. What about our sufferings? Be joyful even in the midst of your sufferings. Not that the sufferings don't hurt. Oh, they do. But there's something about joy that still sticks with us even in the midst of that. Think about the person who knew suffering more than any other human being in, in history. The Lord Jesus himself, right? Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
Dr. McKelvey's been pointing that out to us so beautifully in, in uh, Isaiah 53. And if he, of all people, knew sufferings more than anyone else, what does Hebrews chapter 12 tell us about his sufferings? Verse 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. Isaiah 53 says, He, Jesus, was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And here in Hebrews 12, it says, He despised the shame of the cross. And it was all because of the joy set before him. And so that, that tells us a lot. If Jesus in all of his suffering possessed joy, my sufferings, which are far less, though very real, I can possess joy too. Jesus said that in John 15. He said, I want my joy to be made complete in you. That's an amazing thing. It's really surprising to know how much the Bible has to say about joy. And that sort of runs counter to what a lot of people think Christians are. Christians, oh yeah, they're the most unhappy people in the world. No. They're the ones that know joy that the world can't know anything of because of Jesus. The whole thing is based on one little phrase here. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And that's reminding us that it is our union with Christ, our being spiritually connected to Jesus that makes all the difference in our lives. His life is now working in us. Paul's favorite phrase was in Christ, in the Lord. He uses those over and over and over again in his letters. You can have joy because of your relationship to Jesus Christ through faith in him. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Those who don't know Christ can be happy in a sense. And that's a wonderful thing but they can't know real, true joy apart from Christ. So he's commanding us to do something that we're able to do because of our relationship to Christ. Because we are in Christ, we have every reason to rejoice and we can rejoice. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the great Welsh preacher of the 20th century. And he said this very simply, God's people are meant to be a people who are always rejoicing in the Lord. That's who you are meant to be. That's who I am meant to be. Part of a people who are always rejoicing in the Lord, whatever the situation. Now, if you would, flip over in your Bible to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. And if you have to look it up in the table of contents, that's okay. We're not going to, to judge you on that. Toward the end of the Old Testament, because it's a little book, you could easily miss it. Habakkuk chapter 3. And it's the last three verses of the book. Habakkuk only has three chapters. Habakkuk was dealing with 
an ominous uh, danger that was about to come into the life of Judah, where the whole nation was going to be overrun, people taken into captivity by the Babylonians. He had to work through some issues about that in this little book. But knowing what was coming, he comes back and says what he does in the last three verses, verses 17 through 19. Listen to this very carefully. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. You see that, that determination? I will rejoice in the Lord. I am going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to take joy in the God of my salvation. That, where's your source of joy, dear friend? Is your source of joy based on something as, I trust this is not true, but something as uh, relatively superficial as did your favorite team win yesterday? Or do you have all the money in your bank account that you'd like to have? Or is everybody in your family healthy? Those aren't necessarily bad things. But that's not where our true joy comes from. If it is, we'll be disappointed. The true joy comes from our relationship with the God of our salvation. Christ himself. No excuses then about saying, well, that sounds great, Paul, rejoice in the Lord, but I'm just not there. Well, why aren't you? Do you know Christ? Do you have a right relationship with God? Because you put all of your sin in, uh, on Christ and he's taken all your sin upon him. If, he's redeemed, if he has redeemed you, you can obey this command to rejoice. Because he is for you. And if he is for you, who can be against you? Now, second thing to note. Joy is really a duty, yes. Secondly, verse 2, joy requires caution. Joy requires caution. Paul here, here gives us several warnings. Beware. Watch out for. First of all, he says, watch out for the dogs. Or, as the signs in the yard sometimes say, beware of dog. You know, there's all kinds of dogs in our culture today. Uh, I, I had an experience one time where I, I came up with upon a, a mix of a variety of dogs running in sort of a pack. And they, I was taking a walk down the street and all of a sudden these dogs came out of nowhere. Four or five dogs. Big ones, little ones. And they, I was walking and they were just really after me. They all just surrounded me and I kept walking and the little mutt of the group started nipping at my heels and the nip 
at the heels turned into a bite in the heel. And uh, I thought, man, that dog just bit me. So what did I have to do? I had to go get a tetanus shot. Don't really want to get what dogs can transfer to human beings. And turned out fine, but it's the only time I can remember uh, being bit by a dog. But listen, as a pastor, I've been in many homes and encountered many pets, including a, a parrot who mocked the cat because the parrot was safe in his, ja- in his cage. <laughs> but, you know, you'd hit, sometimes you'd have these big dogs who just go, you know, won't leave you alone. You got these little bitty dogs that want to jump in your lap. You get all kinds of stuff. Um, but here he's talking about something much more dangerous because the term dog in ancient times was a, a, an expression of, a, 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 it's a term used that has to do with wild ravenous scavenger dogs. They weren't domesticated like most of the animals that we uh, have around. And so Paul's taking this derogatory term and he's referring it to a certain group of people. Watch out for those spiritual dogs. And the people he's referring to were called the Judaizers. You see the word Judaism in that word. The Judaizers were beginning to infiltrate churches. They hadn't gotten into the Philippian church yet, it seems, but they were uh, on the verge of it if the Philippians didn't watch out for them. And they were teaching that you should have faith in Christ. Yes, that's all well and good. But in addition to believing in Christ, you need to submit to the Old Testament ceremonial commands. Believe in Jesus, plus obey the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Things like your dietary law, the dietary laws that the Jews had under the Old Covenant. Things like having your sons circumcised like the Jews did. You have to do that to be saved, these teachers were saying. Paul says those guys are spiritual dogs. You need to beware of those dogs. If they crop up in your church, you need to be ready to refute that, to refuse to have that taught in uh, your church because it will contaminate you. It will be like spiritual rabies, only much worse. So he's warning them here. And then he says, watch out for the evildoers. If they come in with this false teaching, they're doing evil by not telling you the truth. They're not telling you about the gospel of Christ that says what we just sang a while ago. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Nothing else. It's Christ plus nothing that I put my trust in. Not Christ plus this or that. Not Christ plus baptism. Not Christ plus the Lord's Supper, not Christ plus plus church attendance, not Christ plus living a a moral life, that that will get me into heaven. Our works amount to nothing. We are saved by grace alone, not by works that we might do. These dogs were a certain group of people who 
were bent on bringing others into their fold, obviously for less than the greatest of reasons. And then he says, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. You know, I mentioned circumcision. Paul's referring to that here. They're not practicing circumcision out of a legitimate position. They're doing it to gain favor from God, that God would accept them because they circumcised their boys. That never was the case in the Old Testament. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, justification by faith. And he had himself and everyone in his family circumcised at that point because that was where it all started. But his faith was in the Lord and the Lord's promises alone. The description of these spiritual canines that he's talking about here is now even more clear. Paul's referring to certain teachers then that insisted that in order to gain eternal life, you had to have this formula, Christ plus following the Old Testament ceremonial laws. That amounts to this improper, unbiblical formula, faith plus works, contrary to the message of the gospel, faith plus Christ, uh, faith in Christ plus nothing is how God accepts us. Paul says this perverted gospel message amounts to the mutilation of the flesh when it comes to circumcision because it was wrongly used. Now, this sign of the covenant was an appropriate sign, but it was just a sign. It wasn't the real deal. Just like today, baptism in and of itself can't do anything. You are not more in a better spiritual state a second after you were baptized than a second before you were baptized. Baptism is a sign of salvation, just like the Lord's Supper. You're not automatically blessed just because you go through the motions of the Lord's Supper. It's a sign of the death of Christ that you are putting your hope and confidence in. Someone put it very clearly, false teaching kills joy. And that's the point Paul's making here. I'm warning you about false teaching because it will rob you of the joy that you have when you're only looking to Christ. Now, these dogs that Paul was talking about are still with us today in all kinds of ways. There's such a, there's no telling how many versions of uh, religion, I, want to, I don't even want to call it Christianity, but they claim to be teaching Christian truth. There's so many versions of that out there now in, you know, on the, uh, on the internet and, and the bookshelves and the bookstores and, and things that we hear from people who go to other churches and tell us about it. And we just, we should think horrors, you know. One of the things that uh, was pointed out at uh, Jerry's funeral, and most of you who knew Jerry, of course, knew this story about how Jerry came to Christ. He was from a church background that believed you had to be baptized to be saved. They, you had to believe in Jesus, but you had to be baptized. That's the same formula that Paul is talking about right here. And as Jerry, uh, in the medevac helicopters in Vietnam, had people 
die in his arms at times, had soldiers die in his arms, and one in particular whose leg was mutilated. We were told about that yesterday. And Jerry thought, this guy's going to die, and he needs Christ, but he's thinking, well, how can I get him baptized? How can I get him baptized? Because you've got to be baptized to be saved. That's what he was taught, at, you know, and he was believing at that point. You know, so the minister yesterday said, uh, Jerry thought, do I, do I drop him in the South China Sea and let that count for baptizing? And that led Jerry to rethink this whole matter of how do you come to a right relationship with God? It's faith alone in Christ alone. We have to just drill that in. You know, Paul said back in verse 1, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. It is for your safety that you hear the basics of the gospel over and over and over again. If you really love Christ and you love the gospel message, you'll never get tired of hearing it again. You shouldn't. In fact, it becomes richer and, and it works its way deeper into your soul and into your life as you go along. Stay alert. Beware of such dogs. Don't be indiscriminate in everything you pick up and read or hear. Filter it all through the truths of the, of the scriptures and the gospel. Lastly, notice joy results from our life in Christ. Joy results from our life in Christ. Paul here gives a contrast to what he had just said. Watch out for these false teachers. And then he says, but we believers... We are the circumcision. We're the real deal, referring to all believers in Christ. He's saying that, that God has done what circumcision and, and the other sacraments in the New Testament all were designed to point us to. God has done it in Christ. In the Old Testament, actually, uh, the people of Israel were, were uh, exhorted uh, in, for instance, in, Jer uh, in uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, Moses said, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. That's real circumcision. When God does an operation on your heart. As Ezekiel says, he takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. A real spiritual heart. So, Deuteronomy says that, Jeremiah says it in Jeremiah 4, 4, the same thing. And Paul in Romans chapter 2 makes it about as clear as it can be. At the end of chapter 2 in Romans, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. That's Romans 2, 28 and 29. That uh, certainly uh, is the same thing that Paul is saying here in Philippians, true circumcision. And so we remember that today as we go to the Lord's table in a moment.
What are we? We are the people of God whom God has, has changed from the inside out. God has given us a new heart. He's made us new creations in Christ. And so our confidence, as he goes on to say, we have no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is not in what we do or how much money we have or what our accomplishments are or any of those things. Our boasting is in the Lord. And we worship truly. Notice he says that we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And we boast in Christ. We glory in Christ. There's a hymn that we sing, I think we sang it recently. One of the verses says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's what we boast in. You know, I know as a grandparent, I want to pull out those pictures of the grandkids. Have I shown you pictures of my grandkids lately? Yeah, Jim, you have. 20 times in the last week. <clears throat> what am I really needing to boast in ultimately? I'm going to boast in my grandkids. I'll tell you that right now. And I think I can do it without sinning. <laughs> but the ultimate boast, the boast of all boasts, is the glory in Christ and his death and resurrection for me. Do you see where the true joy comes from? Do you see how you need to, that you have a, the reason to rejoice in the Lord in your life? You can rejoice whatever you are going through, what, whether you are being crushed right now by heartache, by rejection, by loneliness, by sickness, whatever it is. You can rejoice because you are going to triumph over all of these things. Indeed, you already are. And that will give you power. The joy of the Lord, dear friend, is your strength. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to inscribe these words upon our hearts. We thank you that you can reach into the depths of our being as no one else can. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you continue to do that. If there be any today that have not put their confidence solely in Christ, Lord, that you would, by your irresistible grace, draw them to him right now. And those of us who know Jesus, Lord, help us to rejoice in the Lord every hour of every day through your Holy Spirit and by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
for believers in Christ and who have made a profession of faith and uh, had some sort of uh, commitment and membership in a Bible-believing, gospel-believing congregation, whether it's Presbyterian or whatever it may be. If you know Christ, that's the restriction. You have to know Christ. This is not for just anybody on the street. It's not for anybody, but in a sense, it's for everybody who does know Christ, who realizes that they need Jesus all the time, not to just be saved initially, but to continue to live out that salvation continually. And so as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we remember Christ's death for us. By his death, we live. By his power, we continue on as we look forward to the day when we will eat and drink with Christ himself in glory with all of the ransomed church of God who will be saved to sin no more, no more in glory. Now, the Lord Jesus restricts this then to those who know Christ. If you don't know Christ, we invite you to come to Christ. In fact, that's the, that's the best thing you can do today. You don't need to come to the table unless you already know Christ. But if you are seeing your need for Christ, then you can come to Christ right now by praying and seeking his salvation. If you're a child and have not yet made a profession of faith, you need to wait until you understand the gospel and embrace it yourself, and then you can come. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. And the Lord Jesus also took the cup, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Drink all of you of it.
Jesus said, this bread is my body. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. The cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of you of it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this very clear, powerful representation of the work of Christ for us. We thank you that Christ is present with us in this sacrament to bless it that we might be strengthened and nourished. For Lord, we are weak and we need to receive your strength continually. May that be so for us as we leave this place today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.